What do nits and bushfires have in common? Who can tell me? What do nits, you know, head lice, those things, and bushfires have in common? Yeah, that's right, they spread, don't they? They spread. And without intervention, the more they spread and the worse they get. Have you ever had nits? Who's had them? Yeah, there we go. There's some admissions this morning. They've been through our family before. Fortunately, when they did go through our family, I didn't get them. Kate wasn't so lucky though. But it only takes one kid at school to come to school with nits and then they spread to other kids, you know, because kids are in close contact with each other and that kind of thing. And then those kids bring them home and then they just infest the whole family and they spread more and more. But they don't just spread to more and more people, nits, do they? They spread on your own head. They spread on your own scalp. And they lay eggs and the eggs hatch and you just get more and more of them. And the more and more of them that you get, the itchier you get. Are you itchy right now? You feeling it? You're wondering if you've got nits? Now, if you don't do anything about them, the thing about nits is they're not just going to go away. They just keep spreading. Intervention is required. And so you need to get like one of those knit combs that you can get from the shop, you know, those things and that special shampoo stuff. And you just, you know, day after day you treat it and eventually you get rid of them. Or I guess you can just shave your head and, um, I don't know, rub a bit of stuff in on your scalp and they'll disappear. What about bushfires? They start small, don't they? But they spread pretty quickly. And before long, they can be burning out of control. They gather in speed, they jump over roads, more fires can start as flying embers um, land in other places. And if you don't do anything, or if there's no change in weather, they'll just keep spreading, won't they? While there's fuel to keep them going, they'll keep spreading and they'll just destroy everything in their path intervention is required. Like a change in weather, a bit of rain, or the wind dying down or a changing direction. Firefighters do a bit of back burning, they get ahead of the fire, they take away, burn some of the fuel away so that, to slow them down. And then there's the water bombing, you know, the massive helicopters that dump, or planes that dump gallons of water. We're in, we're in Australia, aren't we, not the US, dump litres megaliters even, of water on these fires. Nits and bushfires, they spread, and without intervention, the more they spread and the worse they get. Now in Genesis 4, this is exactly what we see with sin. We're outside of the Garden of Eden where humans don't rule anymore. Death rules. Everything was good in Genesis 2, But things get bad because of sin in Genesis 3 and things are about to get worse in Genesis 4. There's where we're up to in a nutshell. And if last week, if our question last week from Genesis 3 was, why are we the way we are because of sin? The question this week for us is, what's life like outside the garden? And what we see is that it's a life caught in the spread and in the downward spiral of sin. Without intervention, 
the more sin spreads and the worse that things get. Now, there is hope. There's hope in the God who moves towards sinful humanity in grace. But a right and true understanding of grace only comes alongside a right and true understanding of the depth and of the gravity of our sin. Each and every one of our sin. Well, in the first few sentences of life outside the garden with Cain and Abel, we're looking at verse 1 to 16, everything seems to be going okay. Adam and Eve aren't dead, that's a good start. They, we, we should expect them to be, perhaps, given what's happened in Genesis 3 and the, the judgment that God's handed down, but they're not dead and God's been gracious to them and He's given them children. There's fruitfulness. And their two sons, Cain and Abel, they're doing their work. And their work is done in the context of a relationship with God. Abel's a shepherd, Cain's a farmer. Both good things. And both of these brothers bring something before God, some kind of offering. But something's not right. It's at this point that we start to see that Genesis 4 isn't just a retelling of Genesis 3. It's not just the same story told in a different way. Well, what's the problem? We start to see that sin has spread. In the garden, at the beginning of Genesis 3, hearts were not yet scarred by sin. But outside the garden, at the beginning of Genesis 4, here, hearts are very much scarred by sin. There's something wrong with Cain's offering. And this implies that there's something deeply wrong with Cain. Let's pick it up from verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. God accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. Why? Does God like meat more than veggies? Now, this isn't MasterChef, where God's there and he's the judge and Abel brings in his lamb rack and it smells good and it looks good and God says, I'd rather a bit of that than Cain's vegetarian fritter. No, that's not what's going on here at all. This is about the heart. Cain and Abel's attitude towards God here is reflected in what they bring to him. Where Cain offered simply some of the produce of the land, Abel offered the best he had from the flock. And the best parts too. See, Cain is half-hearted, haphazard in his devotion to God. Abel's all in. Perhaps Cain even expects something from God, but Abel just wants to please God. See, it's always worth examining our own hearts, isn't it, when it comes to our, how we express our love for God and for others in worship. See, approaching God, it's more of a heart issue than a form issue, isn't it? There are outward forms, our, our worship, our love for God, our love for each other, 
as we love God. It, it comes in actions, doesn't it? It comes in outward forms, but there can be a mismatch, can't there? We can look like we're worshipping God, we can look like we're loving God, we can look like we're loving others, but our hearts cannot be right at the same time. See, offering our lives to God in worship of Him, in service of others, is fundamentally a heart thing before it is an outward thing. Our hearts need to match up with our actions. Worship of God is not just a tick-the-box exercise. If we define religion as outward observance, Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship with God and with others, and that comes and flows out of the heart. And here we see that Cain's heart is not right. It's scarred by sin. Sin has spread. But things are about to get a whole lot worse. Cain gets very angry. And when I say very angry, I mean very angry. He sees red. He's angry about his offering being rejected. He gets very upset. He pouts. He's downcast. We've all seen a kid do this, haven't we, when they don't get their way? They throw a fit, they have a tanty. They kick and scream, they become miserable. All the while, they're thinking about no one but themselves. We've all been there, haven't we? When you're so angry that you just want to stay angry, you know that feeling? Or when you're so miserable that you just want to stay in your miserableness and you want everyone to know that you're miserable. This is Cain. And he's filled with hatred. He hates his brother and he hates God. But despite Cain's hatred, did you notice how God responds? He moves towards him in grace. Have you, have you seen this pattern in Genesis? All the time, in the midst of sin, God speaks into our fallen situation. As sin spreads, so does God's grace. The Lord God warns Cain out of grace, out of love, in verse 6 and 7. Why are you angry, Cain? Why are you so down? If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Listen, Cain, be careful. You're in danger of being mastered by sin. Don't you know that disobedience only leads to more sin? Do what is right and be accepted. Do what is wrong and be devoured. We're told here that sin is like an animal lying, waiting, crouching, ready to pounce. Reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Where it says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So that's how it begins. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full blown, gives birth to death. That's what it says in James. 
Well, Cain's response to God's gracious warning, it's disturbing. Because he speaks to his brother and not God. Verse 8, let's go out to the field. He ignores God's warning. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He killed him. He murdered him. We're not, told how, we're not told how he did it. But why did he do it? Was he jealous of his brother? Well, yeah. Did he hate him? Yes. But ultimately, Cain's issue was with God. Cain murders his brother because he hates God. He can't kill God, so he kills his brother. This act of violence, the murder of a brother, it's horrific, isn't it? It's just plain evil. But isn't this, isn't this our world? This isn't just an evil of the past. This is our world. This is, a, this is life outside the garden for us. Violence is part of our story and it has been from the beginning. And it's something that we're all impacted by. And I want to highlight three ways that we're impacted by violence. Number one, we fear violence. Walking home in the dark past a group of drunk young blokes scares us. The threat of terrorist attacks might scare us. Maybe like me, you've had nightmares of someone breaking into your house and threatening your family. Do you lock your doors at night? Sadly, for some of us, it's not just a dream. It's all too real. It's been all too real. The fear of a violent parent or partner or bully. Violence that I've come to understand is far more broad and comes in far more many forms than just physical. We fear violence. Number two, we're all capable of violence. Violence doesn't discriminate. As we look around the world, it should teach us that violence is universal. It is not exclusive to class, to culture, to gender or to age or anything else, any other markers of identity. We've all had violent thoughts. We've all been fiercely angry with our parents, with a crying or a disobedient child, on the sporting field. It might not have spilled over into violence, but if we're real with ourselves, we know the urge is there, don't we? We know the urge is there. If you've ever slammed a door kicked a wall, thrown an object across the room, screamed at someone, thrown your pads and your gloves and your bat when you get out, sworn at an umpire, you're capable of violence. And if you're capable of violence, you're capable of killing someone. It's the second thing. We're capable of violence. The third thing, the third way that we're impacted by violence is I think we we can become desensitised to it. See, newsreaders don't cry when they read about mass violence every night, do they? We don't bat an eyelid at another report of violence. You know, the first time you hear about someone getting king hit and murdered, 
It shocks you. But the fifth time, it's just, it just becomes normal. Not only that, though, we've turned violence into entertainment. UFC. You know, where you just punch and... I reckon it's like, it's sport, or it's violence just dressed up as sport, UFC. It's just like, you know, just punching. There's, there's a few controls, but you, punching and kicking and breaking and video games. We've turned violence into entertainment. Some of us, more than others, have become desensitised to violence. And if that's the case, I reckon the impact of what Cain does to Abel in that field might be a bit lost on us. We might not feel the weight of it. But listen to this. The first person to die in the Bible was murdered by his own brother. The first humans, the first parents, Adam and Eve, lived through that. From eating forbidden fruit to murdering a brother in cold blood, things are clearly on a downward spiral outside the garden. Life has gone from bad to worse. In one generation, sin has spread and humanity is now on a downward spiral. See, Cain's attitude, as well as his action... I think, are portrayed in Genesis 4 as more severe and more, having more of an impact than those of his parents. His parents gave birth to sin. They brought sin into the world. And Genesis 4 tells the story of what kind of impact that sin is going to have on God's world. And it's, it's about a descent into depravity. See, while Eve is talked into her sin by the serpent... Cain won't even be talked out of it by God. While Adam speaks the truth when God asks, where are you in Genesis 3, Cain lies when God asks him, where is your brother Abel? He says, I don't know. And then he jokes about not being his brother's shepherd. That's what it means when he says, I'm not my brother's keeper. He's basically saying, I'm not my brother's shepherd. You know, it's a pun. So when God punishes Adam and Eve, there's no argument, is there, in Genesis 3. But Cain kicks and screams and complains loudly. My punishment is more than I can bear. See, set alongside each other, Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 tell a story of spiralling downward further into sin. And that's important for us to see. Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 are not the same exactly. Closely related, but not the same. And that downward spiral is even more obvious with where Cain ends up. He's exiled further away from Eden, away from God's presence, away from the source of life. But again, even here, with Abel's blood on his hands, the Lord God moves towards him in grace, doesn't he? Did you notice that? See, what Cain did in murdering his brother isn't going to come back on him. Even though it's what he deserves... He will not receive the same deed that he'd done to his brother by someone else. God marks Cain to protect his life. He allows Cain to go on living. We might think that grace is just a New Testament concept. 
but no. God has been moving towards fallen humanity in grace from the beginning. And God isn't just being gracious to Cain here. He's not just being gracious to Cain. He's being gracious to humanity because by being gracious to Cain, it means that humanity can go on to grow and develop. Let's look now at Cain and his descendants. We'll read from verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael. And Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. See, for Cain and his descendants, life even further away from the garden seems to start out okay. There's fruitfulness again. No one's died. No one else has died. And in the next few verses, if you read on, there are cultural advancements for humanity in agriculture, in music, in technology. But despite these things, the reality is that sin has just spread further out into the world. Cain still lives in defiance of God. Remember, God sends him to wander restlessly, but he settles down. Did you notice that? God promises protection, but he builds a city, and cities are fortresses of protection. But again, this isn't just a rerun of Genesis 3. The point here is that sin gets worse. The downward spiral continues with Cain's descendants. Along comes Lamech. He's the first bigamist. And with him, the violence of Cain steps up even more. Not only is he determined to outdo Cain in his violence, he boasts about his determination to outdo Cain. He says to his wives, full of arrogance, full of pride, Adah and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. See, this story, this true story, of Genesis 1 to 11, the story of where we come from, the story of who we are, it's one where sin and violence gets progressively worse from generation to generation. And we'll see where that ends up next week with Noah. Last year at youth, we looked at the book of Judges. And it's the same story, a downward spiral. Sin is rampant. Sin is pervasive. Sin is destructive. This is the picture of our lives outside the garden, a life caught in the spread and the downward spiral of sin. So it's a life where we, we give in to temptations and desires, isn't it? We turn our backs on God thinking we know better than Him. We set up our own little gardens where we rule rather than God and where we basically tell God, your way is not the best, my way is better. 
Life outside the garden is not like life in a zoo where the animals are all locked up in cages. Life outside the garden is life in the wild. Sin is prowling, it's crouching at the door and it's wanting to devour us. And it's easy to let it devour you, isn't it? It's easy to get angry. It's easy to consider yourself before others. It's easy to swear. It's easy to tear others down. It's all just easy. But sin isn't just something we find easy. And this, this part of our depravity, part of our, the depth of our sin that we need to hear. It's not just something we find easy, it's something we enjoy. We enjoy rebelling against God. We, we enjoy committing treason against Him and putting ourselves on the throne where only He deserves to be. We cherish sinful ways. We hold on to them. And we even resist help to deal with them. This is our state in sin. Left to ourselves, sin spreads. And the worst things become for us and for others. We're stuck in a situation that we can't change ourselves. No amount of self-help or life coaching, no amount of goodwill even, will lead us to escape sin and its consequences. Whether it's our own sin or the sin of others that we're affected by. Intervention is required, isn't it? Outside intervention, from outside of ourselves. From the God who we keep seeing in Genesis, moves towards sinful humanity in grace. You might have noticed that we skipped over something in the story. And it's the bit that I keep being drawn to, that I keep seeing as I read this chapter. It's the blood that cries out in verse 10. The blood that cries out. What do we hear from Abel? Nothing. And isn't, it always the, isn't that always the case with the victim? The victim remains silent. Abel doesn't get a word out in Scripture. He never gets to speak a word. But what Abel does speak is louder than words. God says to Cain, listen. That's the sound of your brother's blood shouting at me from the ground. Your brother's blood is crying out for justice. But of course, what we've seen in the God who keeps moving towards humanity in grace, we've seen that in how he moves towards Cain, is that God's concern for the victim is matched only by his concern for the sinner. God's concern for the victim is matched only by his concern for the sinner. God's commitment to justice is matched only by his commitment to grace. And his justice and his grace come together in Jesus. He was murdered like Abel. He was the victim like Abel. As he stood accused, as he was beaten, as he was mocked, as he was scorned, he was silent. But as we read in Hebrews 12, as we just read, 
Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's blood. The blood of Abel still speaks and cries out for justice, but the blood of Jesus speaks even better things. Abel's blood cries out for justice, Jesus' blood cries out justified. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance, Jesus' blood cries out avenged. Abel's blood cries out for the defeat of sin and death. Jesus' blood cries out, victory is won after sin and death are ambushed on the cross, a bit like Abel was ambushed in that field. And the wild twist? We're not just victims of sin. See, the wild twist is that Abel's blood cries out against us. But Jesus' blood cries out for us. Removing our guilt, removing our condemnation, setting us on the path to life where the cycle and the downward spiral of sin is arrested and where we can live new lives for Jesus and for God. Jesus' blood undoes all of our sin and rescues us from it. What is life like outside the garden? Well, we've seen in Genesis 4 that without intervention, it's caught in the spread and the downward spiral of sin. But the better question is this. Since we are outside the garden, what hope do we have? Genesis 4 points us to the one and only God who, despite our sin, and because of our sin even, moves towards us in grace. Where sin increases, so does his grace. And this is great news. Great news. Because it means that it's now possible. It's now possible to live a life where sin in us starts to die as we put it to death and as we, new, as we live new lives for Christ. And we'll explore what that looks like a bit more next week. But let's just sit in this wonderful news, in the blood that speaks a better word than Abel's.